Welcome to the Truth to Power show on Radio Free Brooklyn. I'm your host, VGR Nathan, and with us today is co-host Bruce Whitaker. Welcome, Bruce. Hello, VJ. Good morning, everyone. Good morning. Good morning. So with us today is special guest Dave Chislom. He is a trumpet player, cartoonist, composer, and educator currently residing in Rochester, New York, who received his doctorate in jazz trumpet from uh, Eastern School of Music in 2013. He coexists in both the music and comics world, resulting in a wide variety of creative projects, including the upcoming Charlie Parker comic, Chasing the Bird, um, the psychological science fiction tale, Cannabis 2020, graphic novel and sound instrument instrumental, um, as well as that was from 2017, as well as a variety of music and comics projects. He also teaches visual art, cartooning, and music at Rochester Institute of Technology, the, the College of Brockport, SUNY and the um, Hochstein School. He spends his free time hanging out with his wife, Elsa, Elise, <laughs> and their two cats, Tilly and Penny. Welcome, Dave. Sorry if I butchered some of those. Uh... No, yeah, it's all good. Yeah. yeah. Thanks so, for having me. Thank you. Thank you. So, Leah, let's start the conversation off with your writing and, uh, and the different projects or the comics you worked on. So, tell us, a little, introduce us to your work a little bit and what are the themes or ideas that you like to explore uh genres as well okay yeah uh well generally like um my process for this is like i kind of i kind of have like an ongoing like rolodex of like like um story conceits like ideas mm. uh, i tend to not i tend to like writing like genre stuff that's like a little bit fantastic or like sci-fi or some kind of horror elements or something that's like not just not just like real life. I guess I'm a I'm a little uh, juvenile in that way. And then uh, and I, I just have this list of like ideas. And then I and then like any human being, I have a I have a bunch of like personal conflicts or things that I recognize as like problems in the world or basically like a list of of themes that I that I want to pull from that are meaningful to me. And then what I do is I kind of mix and match the two. So I say like, well, this theme is is uh, like how to deal with like resentment and pain in your life. And does that go with this sci-fi idea? And, and then when I combine them together, like what kind of, what kind of story comes out of that? Yeah. Um, and so I would say all the, all the works that I do are like really personal to me in that, in that way. Um, the, the book that's, that's coming out right now is a, is a science fiction book called Canopus. And it's about this woman who, uh, the elevator pitch is that it's about this woman who wakes up on an alien planet um, 300 light years away from earth. And she has no memory of how she got there. And uh, as she explores the planet, trying to figure out a way to repair her ship, um, her memories start to come back as monsters on the surface of the planet. And so this one, the general theme of this is like learning how to, reconcile with like your resentment and your pain from the past and your traumas from the past uh and sort of like learning how to heal and move forward um and so like this is me sort of like dealing with my own inability to kind of like forgive people mm. you know if I, i'm like i hold a mean <laughs> grudge i'm like not a I'm, I'm not the best at like and so this is kind of like me trying to like reflect on that and understand and try to like learn some stuff for myself. Um, and so, yeah, that's like a basic overview of my uh, process when I'm putting these personal projects together. Uh, I also have a, 
sort of like I have a book that's coming out in September that's um that's kind of like somewhere between like a nonfiction biography and historical fiction. Uh, it's a book about the saxophonist Charlie Parker. Um, and this one was, I, I was uh, commissioned to do this one by the Charlie Parker estate. It's called Chasing the Bird. And so this one, the process was a little bit different because um, it it's not obviously not rooted in my experience and my um, my own personal issues and or hangups and stuff like that. It's, uh, But I would say by the time, by the time I started working on it, um, started drawing it uh, and put it all together. By that point, I think I had found a real personal angle yeah. on it. So it's still kind of turned into that anyway. So, it must be yeah. interesting when you're dealing with nonfiction topics to find the connection and really bring that passion into it. And then Loby, tell us a little bit more about that process of like connecting with the characters or connecting with the person personalities. And to what extent do you have the liberty to like invent or change things? Mm. Or, yeah. Well, that well, I, I would say. Um, Probably not every comic project or I'm just going to speak from for the world of comics, I guess. I'm not going to like expand to movies and stuff like yeah. that. I, don't, I can't speak from with any amount of like authority on, in those realms. But but for the for comics projects, um, I imagine there's quite a bit of like a, a pretty broad spectrum in, mm. in for these nonfiction projects. And, and I and again, like I always temper that with like like a nonfiction or historical fiction kind of because um. Well, when I when when I was approached for this, uh, I was asked to put together a pitch for it um, about Charlie Parker's time in California. He spent like two years in California in the late late forties, and um, there were a few caveats that were requested, uh, and so I kind of like looked at the looked at the list of things that they didn't want in the book, and I and then I put together this pitch that um, if you know anything about Charlie Parker's life, you'll know that like a huge part of his of his story is tempered by like tall tale and legend. Mm. Um, so he's like maybe one of the last major influential figures that, uh, that, that this could even happen with, right? Like this doesn't happen anymore really mm. because everyone's life is documented in like lossless media. Yeah. <laughs> um, so like, uh, you could never have a tall tale about a person at this point, or it's very, very rare. Whereas Charlie Parker uh, came to kind of like, he was born in 1920 and he, and uh, he only lived like 35 years. And um, there's a lot about his life. That's like legend and like kind of tall tale uh, hearsay kind of stuff. And even like after he died, his name became like a brand almost more than it became a, than his almost larger than his, than his person. Right. Um, it kind mm -hmm. of like, took his humanity away in a way because it was such a brand for like the particular lifestyle and a particular type of music. And I really wanted the book to speak to that, which means that um, you have to find room in this story for, um, for like BS, you know, mm. like, mm -hmm. um, um, and so, <clears throat> and so uh, with this particular project, so I put together a pitch and I got the gig and in the conversation with the, people who manage uh his estate they they said we don't we don't want this to be a documentary feel we don't want this to be boring mm. and so i was really grateful because i didn't feel i didn't want it to be like in 1920 in kansas city charlie parker was born right like yeah. i didn't want it to be like a real dried super narrated 
uh, dry thing. And so like the way I frame the story is um, it's like six vignettes about Char from Charlie Parker's time in California. Each one is narrated by a different person whose life intersected with Charlie's life in California. And um, you get their point of view, which may or may not be accurate. Um, and so the first, so like the first chapter is narrated by Dizzy Gillespie and there's a chapter narrated by, um, a woman that Charlie had like an off on an on again, off again relationship with on the West coast. There's a chapter narrated by an artist who, uh, who had like a ranch where he would host these crazy parties, um, in just outside of, in the, in like the foothills of Los Angeles. And, um, and each chapter is drawn in a different style. I, so I drew each chapter in a different style to reflect the point of view of the artist. And the way the storytelling works is different in each one. Mm. Um, the woman who he has a relationship with, for example, the woman who he, the, his like West Coast girlfriend, um, she was a bohemian kind of artist who, who like in the little that I kind of could find out about her personally, like in research, like, was very much about breaking down boundaries in and uh, challenging boundaries set by society, kind of like a proto counterculture person. And she, um, and so for her chapter, there are no panel borders just as a symbolic way of depicting mm. like her breaking down boundaries. There's no panels. All the images just like melt into one another. Mm. Uh, and so, and um and so in terms of the historical accuracy of it, I would say that like um, there, it's not, there, there are part like there are parts that are historically accurate and there are some things that are deliberately like not historically accurate. And if you read five different, like I read five Charlie Parker biographies for this to prep for this and they're all different. They all mm. tell like a different story. Yeah. And this is, this is what, and so, and so since I'm depicting such a short period in his life, um, it kind of allowed me to like, to play with the way people see him. Also, Charlie Parker was kind of known for, uh, <clears throat> messing with people, messing with people as well. So he would, uh, he would, ne he would, he was not very like forthcoming and honest in interviews, or maybe he sometimes was, and sometimes he would give answers that were kind of like, like like uh, trolling kind of answers and in interviews and stuff like that. <laughs> and uh, he, and even with his friends, they were like, you could never really tell what he was thinking or what he wanted you to think. So it's, um, it was a blast. I mean, it was such, so much fun to put this book together. And, uh, and, um, and, and, and I, I was really encouraged by the estate and the publisher, my publisher Z2 comics to, uh, to like, push boundaries to take risks to just they like we all wanted the book to be like ex like an exciting book like an like a like an interesting book like not exciting in the way like die hard is exciting <laughs> but like but like um you know it's um it's uh it, they they let me like and the, and the nice thing is that the book is being released in con in uh coordination with an an album that an uh, of un previously a unreleased or at least officially unreleased re live recordings of Charlie Parker during that time in California. Oh my God. And oh my God. the, the cool thing is the, the liner notes for the, for the album are like really thorough. 
and so that so in a funny way the album the album notes are like a really nice companion to the book mm. because the album notes are the documentary style presentation of this exact content that i'm like sort of playing painting like uh more colorful versions of the of the story you know what i mean so this touches on the other side of your work which is in jazz and i wonder if you could uh first of all position a little bit of what this period in, in california historically means to jazz what charlie what charlie parker's california period means but then also maybe draw from it as a musician some of the things that that uh that you responded to in in the story as it came about not only as a uh, graphic artist and narrator but as a as a musician oh man um well first off like i have like you know three degrees in jazz music and i've really dedicated my like uh adult life to studying this like this music that comes from like black american culture and it's interesting i'm a i'm like a white guy and and uh this music has really given me so much and means the whole whole world to me and um and i think for as when speaking to like Char what charlie parker's what charlie parker playing that music in california meant it's 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 tricky you know because um when you pull back and look at like the the greater historical image of bebop like what his what bebop this bebop man well first we kind of have to put it into context so like it was immediately kind of coming out of like swing music right um so swing music was like the pop music the last time jazz was like the ultimate force of like popular a popular style right and swing music was largely like riff based dance music repetitive uh you know not I would say like not unpredictable, you know, not to say like we, we don't want to use the word predictable to describe it really. Like, cause that seems like an, like an invective or whatever. Um, but like say it's not super unpredictable because it's dance music, you know, you, you know, you don't want unpredictability when you're dancing. And um, this is a time of like real, I mean, we're still in, we're still living through it, but like of real racial discord um, so generally you had like white bands and you had black bands and the white bands could tour wherever they wanted to and would get paid more. And the black bands were unsafe touring in particular regions and didn't get paid as much. And so the generally the black bands, it was like not a, uh, uh, economically tenable uh, pro like prospect for like these big 18 piece bands to like be touring all like 10, 12 like 10 months out of the year or whatever um, the way it would work for like white, white bands. And <clears throat> despite the fact that like the innovations largely come from that, the black community. Right. And so these um, artists were basically ended up mostly in like um, cities around the country, primarily New York city, primarily in Harlem. Right. And so, uh, and I think that like, it really feels like whether it was deliberate or not deliberate, Bebop came out of that as a reaction against that, like a protest against that, um, where, where the 
everything that swing embodies is like not there, not so much there in bebop. So like the bands are small instead of 18 piece dance band, it's a five piece band. The music was un extremely unpredictable. The music was not so much riff based as much as it was based on virtuosity, right? It was based on like, like playing really challenging music. And I imagine for listeners at the time, it was like so avant-garde and so strange, right? I think Louis Armstrong, uh, was not a fan of bebop when it first came out. He, I think he said some pretty like mean things about bebop at the time. And <clears throat> even though when we hear it now, I don't think it sounds particularly avant-garde, like per se, like we have to try to put ourselves in, put our ears in back in time to that time, because by this point we've heard the soundtrack to the movie alien. And we like, know like everything sounds like we're, our ears are pretty, pretty, pretty like, desensitized to like strangeness um and so and so uh <clears throat> and so this was the first time that music was taken uh from its home on the east coast to the west coast this was the first time that music was performed on the west coast and um in you you when you read the book you'll see that like west coast audiences didn't really take to it initially it took a while for west coast audiences to like it. it the first reaction was like this is what everyone's been like talking about and it's really weird this music is really weird and charlie parker was allegedly like kind of put off by that um and you know again the story is that like dizzy was the was the first like kind of crossover hit in in bebop music because dizzy gillespie was was a little bit more willing to kind of play a character on stage. Um, he had like the, his kind of uniform with like the, the chunky glasses and the soul patch and like the, a beret on his head. And like when he played his cheeks got really puffy and it, and it was like a caricature almost. Um, and he, and it, and the, the real, the branding of bebop really was, was around his, his imagery. Um, and I think like when Charlie was in LA, he, uh, well, this is like kind of another section of the book that is pretty famous in jazz history that he was institutionalized for two years, not for two years, sorry, for, for, um, for like almost a year, he was institutionalized in a, in a mental hospital and, um, cause he's a troubled guy and Dizzy during that time is when Dizzy really kind of ascended right when he dizzy went back to new york and his career kind of took off a little bit more uh, on a national scale after that and i think this affected charlie um charlie really wanted to be part of that um or he felt like a little i maybe a little bit jealous but again this is me like conjecture because there's no charlie was so coy in interviews there's no way he was ever going to be like real forthcoming with that information in an interview so um so yeah like uh it's, I think the, I think that you can't separate the history from the music um, in any situation. And uh, it's just, a, it's a really fertile, fascinating time. Also tragic time as well. So. Yeah. Mm. And as you play jazz and as you explore it, uh, what are some of the movements in jazz right now that excite you? If it's kind of like the equivalent, if there is an equivalency to bebop coming on the scene in those mm -hmm. years. What is, what is emerging now in the jazz scene that excites you? Well, that's a really, that's a really tricky question because um, 
I, if I was to characterize the music world, not just the jazz world, but the music world at large from the past in the past, like, well, like I, I was born in 1981. And so in over the past, the over my, over my whole life, I would say that what we really see is, uh, I don't think this is a word, but like, I'm going to say it anyway, a particleization of, of like monoculture just ke it keeps getting smashed into more and more smaller bits to the point that like, what's a movement? What is a movement like in music and pop culture? There are no movements. It's only yeah. like niches and small like scenes that are like pockets of influence. Right. Yeah. So like, will we ever have another Bob Dylan? Will we ever have another, another John Coltrane? Will there ever be another, you know, Madonna like ever like Lady Gaga, I guess comes close. But when you, then when you compare the influence of the two, really it's no comparison. Right. Mm -hmm. uh, and so like everything is broken down into like, your kind of like niche of like what uh, catering to your individual taste. Right. And even within something as already um, shoehorned into like its own niche as jazz, there's like a million scenes inside jazz of like such a huge, enormous variety of music that the label is almost rendered totally meaningless. Like what is jazz in 2020? Is It's kind of like that thing where if someone says what they're doing is jazz, it's jazz, right? <laughs> Um, and even then, like you have, then there's this entire reaction of the, the, the word itself is problematic. Like the word jazz is like a racist term, right? That, it, that started as a derogatory term um, describing the music of black artists making like what they did in New Orleans in like the early 20th century. Um, you know, it was like a dirty word, right? And so there's an entire subset of musicians who perform this music who call who want it to be called black american music and i don't disagree with that and frankly charlie parker didn't disagree with that back when he was alive he hated the word jazz he hated the word bebop he just wanted it to be called music he just he he didn't see he he kind of like i think that um sometimes we look at at art and we and we love building walls between things so we can define things right we want to put a little label on everything um, and I think that someone like Charlie Parker was more interested in seeing the, the ties that bind things together. Mm. Like he was as much of a fan of J.S. Bach and like Stravinsky as he was of like jazz, so-called so jazz artists of the, of the time, or at least he claimed to be again, like we don't how much of what he said in interviews and such was like him kind of like, trolling people we don't i mean it's hard to say so so yeah gonna, um oh sorry i was gonna ask about teaching music um and the students who are coming to you to learn um how they're interpreting it, how and what do you hope that they all get <laughs> and what is that relationship like and how is these students how are these students like interpreting or are they are they kind of how are they interpreting all that how are they getting from analysts or how are you teaching them um, well, I think it's just 
it's 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 a boring answer man it's just fundamentals you know you just want to like get kids like uh like learning fundamentals but i teach a really wide variety of subjects um you know i also love like rock music and pop music and and classical music and stuff like that and i so i teach at hockstein i teach a lot of like like high schoolers and then also like a number of like adult students and i teach songwriting and and I teach jazz trumpet and I teach jazz theory and I teach like general music theory and I teach rock bands. And so in each of these, it's kind of a different set of like rules, but it all boils down to the same basic fundamentals of like tonal music and stuff like mm. that. So, so uh, when I'm teaching jazz, the jazz music is an art form. That's, that's kind of um, it's folk music, meaning that, it's music where the tenets come from the people and not from authorities on high. It comes from just people who are doing it and it's passed in the, and there are elements in the music that you can't get from notation on paper. There are elements in the music that you have to get orally from through, through hearing it and passing it along that way. Mm. The difference between jazz music and other types of folk music. And I don't mean folk music like Bob Dylan. I mean, folk like of the people, like the word folk, you know, yeah. Um, so when you look at the, the, the difference between jazz music and other types of folk music is that it really kind of came to fruition at the same time that recording technology came to fruition, which means that it's the first, arguably the first folk music that, um, you could, you could learn from a recording instead of going to find like a master and having an apprenticeship with a master. Um, you could kind of like get your apprenticeship through like checking out Charlie Parker recordings and the other kind of uh, aspect of, of music recording technology is that it kind of music recording kind of changes the way evolution works in music, right? Um, nothing dies ever. So now that we can record everything, not, nothing, every, nothing will ever die. So there will always be saxophone players who want to play just like Charlie Parker for the rest of humanity. Mm, right. Yeah. There will always be trumpet players who want to play like Louis Armstrong even though that was like a hundred years ago. Right. Um, and all the way, if you take every single movement of jazz, Ornette Coleman, John Coltrane, Miles Davis, 1970s, Miles Davis, weather report, uh, all the way to like guys now, like Ambrose and Christian Scott and uh, you know, Kamasi Washington, like those people will live forever because their influence now has made it so that like, there will always be people who play who whose goal is to play just like them, just like there will always be people who whose goal is to play like themselves and innovate, right? Um, and so, pr- prior to recording technology, evolution would happen like on mass by word of mouth, and folk music would evolve like this. And Louis Armstrong stayed in that time, and his influence would pass on like a game of telephone. And that game of telephone is gone now. So I, I wanted to ask you out of curiosity, um, you have two careers in fields that are extremely specialized, uh, the, the, the comic and creation of comics and then and graphic novels and jazz. How has, how, what was your journey like? How do you, uh, from the first days when you were probably doing both together, how did you kind of break through the barrier to say, take me seriously in the comic world, I'm a trained musician, um, and particularly, and how how do people who have these kind of mutual, multiple interests? What would you? How would you advise them to uh, forge such a, a a dual career path? Um, okay. Well, the first thing is 
uh, I'm like really lucky that I had like family that's that um, was supportive of me. Like, um, you know, like I like my dad's an electrician, um, and I think that one of my dad's goals for me was to never be an electrician because he worked so hard and just like you know his he his body is broken because of his like he worked so hard for like so long and he wanted his kids to like be to to not follow that and he's always been a huge music fan <clears throat> and so the first thing is like like to to expect people to to me to say like what I did and expect people to replicate that like the first step is to be like really lucky and have parents who are like who like because there's a, also a stigma in our culture against like a career in the arts, right? Um, and the, but in terms of the process, I would say the most important thing is to understand how you learn and to like really examine how you learn, like really, really put under a microscope how you learn. And um, we, and I know like teaching can be like a drag sometimes. And I, and, but I would say that like for me, the, the best way to understand how you learn is to teach other people. Mm. And so uh, I know that for me, teaching all of these subjects has really refined my, my understanding of my own process. And, you know, like, remember that scene in Jurassic Park where the velociraptors are always testing the fence for like weaknesses, right? Like you always have to be testing your process for ways to streamline it and ways to learn faster and ways to make your learning more effective and more, more fast, you know? And, um, and then the, and then time management is the other part. Like, uh, don't waste time. Don't like, that's the, you have to be like desperate to like create all the time and you can't waste time with things that don't, that don't matter. Uh, so that's it. Like get, be very lucky, have parents who have a have a support system that cares, examine how you learn, always question your process. And then, and test it for weaknesses. And then the other one, whatever the last one I said, I forgot already. Time management. <laughs> time yeah. management. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> time management. How, where does, uh, this is like the question du jour about this kind of thing, but where does failure fall in that, uh, in that arsenal? Uh, um, you know, I remember um, a poet was uh, with his teacher because he was just coming out of school and the teacher said, you've got to basically paper your, your room with rejections. You can never uh, be afraid of that kind of response to your work when it comes out. But I don't know if, the, if it has to be that hard or how, yeah. how does, uh, where does that, uh, because you're, you're, you're playing, both of your fields are very, very competitive. Yeah, they're very uh, industrial in a way. They're they're not just paint, put a painting painting and put it on the wall. They're lots right. of collaborators, right? So it's complicated. They're gatekeepers and so forth. How how can people kind of armor themselves or prepare for that kind of to work in those kinds of fields? Which that's a that's a great common. question. There's two answers to it. The first answer is like the first answer is, and this is something it took me personally way too long to learn, is that. Um, Networking is like a much larger percentage of success in this field. I use air quotes if anyone's just listening. I don't know how this works, but I'm using air quotes when I say success. Is 
is is is a huge part of success is, is networking and and in making human connection being able to talk to people being able to listen to people right and making like real friends and making real connections with people uh and this is something that i'm always uh, it's a challenge you know i'm not great at it i would say i'm not great at, at networking because i you know i'm kind of a shut in a little bit you know i don't i'm not good at i don't have a great social like my social life is musician are musicians that i play with and right now in quarantine i'm not playing with anybody but um but the second thing is uh um like don't lie to yourself don't delude yourself you know when you're you like tr take treat your work with as much of a of a harsh like be as much of a critic of your work be as be honest about your work before you put it out there right don't don't like put your music out there or your art out there until you until you feel like it's a good representation of what you want it to be um there's this anecdote that i always share in like almost every interview with with about this composer named bob brookmeyer um he's a jazz he's a jazz composer who's kind of famous in that world who he died like 10 years ago he's like 80 years old he was pretty old and he um he he's known for being like a like a great teacher and he, in this anecdote like in interview in an interview an interviewer asked him bob who's your favorite composer and bob said bob brookmeyer and he answered himself right and uh and the interviewer was like whoa aren't you afraid of sounding arrogant and he was like excuse me, he, he was like, who else can I count on to write exactly the music that I want to hear? And I thought that was, I think that's like pretty, uh, you know, pretty a pretty bold thing to say because we all expect artists to be like self-deprecating and kind of like, like, you know, all this. But like, I think that that, like learning that kind of changed my life. I was like, wow, I can just make whatever that I want to hear and then kind of changing the way I see it. And then at that point, it was about like really being honest with myself about the standard that I'm reaching. Um, and that's hard to do. It's hard to do. I, I can't say that I can't say that I'm always good at this. And, and, you know, this imagery, like I, I speak in metaphor a lot, you know, so like, one of my favorite metaphors for failure is that like, life is like, you're in a room with like a high ceiling, and there's a window open at the top of the ceiling that's like your success. And all your failures are like all the dead bodies that you pile up to get so that you have to climb to get to that room. Yeah, good. Um, and it's, it's pretty gross imagery, but you know, <laughs> yeah. but like, um, but like you just kind of have to see it all like, and so at that point you stop looking at these things as failures and you just say like, this is part of my experience and this is le where it's leading to something, but you know, I can't, I can't deny that like I've had some creative projects that have like, haven't been, um, haven't reached the people that I wanted to read, want them to reach. And it's frustrating for sure. And it's always a challenge for this, you know, and I would say collaborating is one of the hardest parts of it. I mean, like collaborating is just how, like trying to understand how you deal with being like let down by other people. I mean, I hate to put it in such dark terms. It's like, you know, if you're that kid at school who get, when you get a group project, you're the one that does all the work. <laughs> like, yeah. So it just sucks to be in that spot. And, yeah. but it's all right, whatever.
Yeah. And I was going to ask about influences on you, which is interesting. Uh, following up that uh, speech, uh, that dialogue we're having. Um, but what were some of the comics you read growing up and what was some things that got, really got you inspired to pursue um, drawing and, and, uh, and writing comics, uh, specifically focusing in on that? Like, and how, how do you think comics are changing with the introduction of digital uh, uh, formats? Um, well, you know, I, I would say that my influences in comics are pretty pretty like um <laughs> you know i want to be like cool and be like yeah all these obs cool obscure things <laughs> but it's not man it's pretty pretty much like right down the middle um but even like, with that it's pretty there's lots of niches that like true. i don't know if you read peanuts or if that was what you're talking about like comics in the, in the <laughs> yeah um, well, newspaper well i guess or what yeah, yeah, like um, so like Cal albums, Calvin and Hobbes yeah. is like Hobbes, a, yeah, yeah. is like a perpetual like course, inspiration course, yeah. for me to this day. Like me Bill too, Watterson yeah. is such an incredible artist, and like everything about that book is perfect. Um, and you know, like uh, did you read superhero comics? Or? I did. I did. Like I I grew up. Well, it's really interesting, actually. Like, I grew up, and my mom to this day claims my first word was Spider-Man. <laughs> and I started drawing at a really, really young age. Yeah. Uh, and um, and uh, I loved superhero comics, but at the in as a kid, the Tooth Fairy would bring, like, comics. Yeah. Like, a big stack of comics every time I would lose a tooth or my brother would lose a tooth. And for some reason... Uh, the Tooth Fairy really loved like 1980s black and white boom, like indie comics, which <laughs> weren't always for kids. Like, yeah. and it was very interesting, like that that's what my folks decided. I don't know if it was deliberately like trying to be subversive, like, cause my parents are kind of counterculture people. And so maybe they were, or maybe they just were like, whatever, I'll just grab this stack of like comics and stuff. And, but, uh, but I think that made an imprint on me. Um, and then in like high school, I look, I, I discovered like Akira and like Japanese comics and that made an impact on me because it's a kind of a different set of storytelling rules. Um, and then it kind of really became obsessed with mechanics and kind of the storytelling aspects of like the challenge of telling a story in this very strange media. Um, and you know, then the usual suspects like the comics of like Alan Moore and Grant Morrison and all of their collaborators. Mm. And um, yeah, like it's just a, it's just an endless like cycle of just like that in terms of the digital aspect of it. Uh, like I think web comics are like really exciting and, but I, but I can't say that I'm an expert on them. I think like it's something that I should probably take some time and like mm. explore that world. I think comics, the comics, the, the kind of there, there's a, there's a greater and greater divide of the comics world into three parts. You have digital comics, which are like web comics and stuff like that, and these things get so many views. But like, do they make a lot of money? I don't know. And they tend to be like coming from like where newspaper comics, they tend to be that where yeah. it's like like short things mm. that are like funny. Um, there's print print comics like floppies like monthly direct market comic book store comics that you like 
like superhero comics and image comics, these ones that come like in the kind of a cheap, I mean, I have a bunch of them around, but like Canopus is that, like it comes out there. And then there's, and then there's the graphic novel market, which is like the, the most, the, the mo- like the most quickly growing of the three regions, I would say. Mm. And this is like Amazon bookstore distribution. Um, and this is, these are stories that are told in like a bigger, like a, like bigger chunks than like the direct market, like 22 mm. to 30 page comics. Whereas these are like one to two to three to four to 500 page books that you get all at once. And it's becoming more and more divided. I would say I'm excited that like I have, I'm, I have Canopus coming out this year. That's a direct market book. And then I have the Charlie Parker book. That's more like catered to the bookstore market. So it's yeah. kind of exciting to see like wh- which one, uh, like what direction can, which, which of these seeds can grow into something else, mm. you know? And even if they don't, it's still an exciting, a cool thing in and of itself. What are, what are some of the uh, rules in comic book storytelling that you were talking about, learning, the, shifting from American to Japanese and so mm. forth, but what, um, if you're, I'm sure the language comes first in a way, uh, and I think of it as sort of like storyboarding a film, but how do you, do you work toward an image you know has to be in the story, or is that how the interaction of image and word goes? Or, um, it's a good, that's a good question. Um, I can only really speak to my own uh, process and perspective on it, but like I see it like um, when I when I step back and look at say like a graphic novel, um, I guess the word I, I I think about is like composition, right? When you compose a graphic novel, like the whole book is like one composition, right? This whole like tome is one composition. You just can't see all of it at the same time, right? but there's a definite shape to like a book, right? And you, before you go, you know the shape of the book, like the narrative shape or, or whatever. Um, and then, and then each chapter has its own shape. And then each chapter is broken into scenes and each scene has its own shape. And then each scene is broken down into a number of pages and each page has its own shape. And then each page is broken down into a number of panels and each panel has its own shape. Mm-hmm. And within each of these, nested shapes is a focal point right so like the whole thing has one focal point or climactic point and then each chapter has its own focal point and then each scene has its own focal point and each page has its own focal point and then each panel has its own focal point so it's kind of like a russian doll of like of like um composition in that sense in terms of the storytelling rules that's a that's a different thing and i think it varies from book to book and from culture to culture in Japanese comics, the kind of cliche is that um, Japanese comics move a lot more slowly than American comics, right? So, like, you might, in American comics or European comics, if you had, like, one character, if you were drawing a comic of a basketball game and you had a character like Slam Dunk, it, would, it might be one panel or one page at the most, right? In a Japanese comic, mm-hmm. it might take, like, 20 pages for a Slam Dunk to happen. <laughs> And they want to get you from every angle and make it the most dramatic slam dunk of all time. <laughs> and, um, and the, this like kind of temporal effect that that causes uh, is something that when you sort of pull back and see the bigger picture, you can, 
use that for its own effect or leave it if you don't, if you want to, if you don't want to mm. use that for its effect. Um, and, you know, like for me, I get really hung up on rules before I start a project. I really make sure that I know what the rules are for my own project. Right. So like, um, and then the whole goal is to break the rules so that it serves the story. So like for Canopus, um, you know, there's no interior monologue. There's no, uh, there's, it's a limited color palette and it's, uh, the, the panels don't overlap. There's only one narrative. And then at specific points in the story, all of these rules get broken specifically to, because I wanted to I break the rules to serve the story um, at particular points. And this is how I create focal points is by break, setting up rules, rigid rules, and then breaking them. And it creates a focal point mm. naturally through those things. And then in terms of the interaction of words and pictures, uh, you know, um, uh, how do I put this? It all depends on how much story you need to tell and how much space. Because words are much more effective at communicating a lot in a small space. If you have a lot of space, you don't need any words. But if you have just a small amount of space, you might have to lean on your words quite a bit for exposition and so on. So, yeah. Fascinating. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Oh, yeah, totally. I'm going to do a couple quick announcements. This is Truth to Power Show on Radio Free Brooklyn. Truth to Power Show airs every Monday at 8 a.m. You're listening to Radio Free Brooklyn, independent listener-supported radio. If you like listening to RFB uh, when you're not in front of your computer, please consider downloading our free mobile apps for iPhone and Android, available in the App Store for iPhone and Google Play Store for Android. Uh, be sure to subscribe to our monthly newsletter for the latest news about new programming and upcoming RFB events. You can sign up at readyforbrooklyn.org newsletter. And then, um, so now, of course, we're still, we're just starting to transition into returning to the studio, but... COVID-19 has been disrupting everyone's lives right now, and Radio for Brooklyn is no, no exception. We want you to know that we have made every effort to ensure the health and well-being of our hosts, staff, and the community at large. Um, for a long time, we closed both our studios and canceled live events, but our hosts are still doing the best to continue bringing new original programming by broadcasting live and pre-recording from their homes, or by selecting the best rebroadcasts of the past shows. With most of our revenue stream evaporated, we need your help. We realize you may be hurting too, but if you can afford a small donation, it'll go a long way towards helping us stay on the air. There are three ways you can help. First, you can give a one-time or monthly donation by giving to radioforbrooklyn.org slash donate. There you can find some great t-shirts, mugs, and other swag that we'd like to send you to say thanks. You can also use your phone to get text RFB Give 5. That's the number 5 to 44321. It only takes a moment, and you'll be able to use your digital wallet for your donation. Finally, if you shop on Amazon, you go to amazon.com slash smile and register Ready for Brooklyn as the nonprofit you wish to support. When you do a percentage of your sales, goes to RFB and it costs you nothing. No donation is too big or too small. Whatever you can afford will make it a huge difference. We uh, thank you for the bottom of our hearts and all of our listeners' health and happiness as we weather the storm together. You can also like um, the Truth to Power Show on Facebook. Um, you just look up at Truth to Power Show. Um, and then you can like that and follow our uh, announcements of guests and all this. But uh, we have a few more. We have like 10 more minutes. So I'm also going to play um, 
if you can introduce the track I'm going to play at the end, uh, tell us a little bit about the 2017 project that you worked on and, and how that was accompanied by a soundtrack, I believe. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Um, the, this is, um, one, 2017, I, uh, Z2 comics, the same people who are publishing the Charlie Parker book put out a book of mine called instrumental and it's a 200 some page graphic novel, uh, with a soundtrack of music that goes with it. Each chapter has a track of music and the graphic novel is about musicians. It's about this trumpet player who comes across this old trumpet that makes the most transcendent music. But every time he plays it, somebody dies or like bad things happen, kind of like a Faustian story. Um, and this track is the first track on it. It's called The Void. Um, and it's kind of meant to depict the kind of like, uh, the main character is, he's not a super nice guy. He's not a super likable protagonist. And so he has this void inside of him that is uh, unfillable. He can't really ever be satisfied. And so uh, this is sort of meant to depict that. Real happy, cheery stuff. <laughs> <laughs> so how was your writing influenced by, and how did the, how were the two in dialogue? Like, tell us a little bit about the process of that. Or, oh, yeah, that's, yeah. A, that's a good question. Um, I'm always looking for new ways to, to kind of like bridge the gap between the two. The big gap is temporal. Obviously, when you listen to music, time is different than when you read a book. You can take as much time as you want when you read a book, whereas when you put on a track, it's a fixed amount of time. Um, so to try to bridge the gap between this um, is, a, is a huge challenge. In terms of the process, I, for me, it's kind of the same thing where you have an idea and you want to find a way to communicate that idea um, using the media that you have. So with, with instrumental the there are like all kinds of little symbolic touches over the course of the soundtrack that probably no one will hear but me uh like the the certain like sounds like the first sound you'll hear on this track is meant to reflect sort of like this um this insatiable void in the back of tom's head the main character and um the bass line and, 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 and again, no one would ever listen to this and be like, oh, that's obviously what it represents. But it's more like for me looking for ways to like clever ways to kind of like make it all like tie together. Um, and the baseline is meant to represent like his obsession, like unstoppable obsession. So this is a very has a really repetitive baseline um, that kind of keeps driving it forward. Uh, but yeah, like. Lately, I've been more thinking structurally with this, like if we analyze the structure of a piece of music and kind of map it out, uh, how can we take that map and use it as a prescription for like a comics sequence? And is there any way to make it so that when you map that, that and map it onto a comic sequence that you can find ways to have the two sync up in a way that's clear yeah. and that's obvious? I was going to ask you about whether or not it's recommended to listen to the soundtrack as reading. Is it, It's all instrumental, so... You cannot, does it, is there a syncing process? Is it uh, kind of the it only syncing of reading, right? I mean, right. I guess, the only yeah. syncing process for it, for the book instrumental is that is there's seven tracks and there's seven chapters and the, they're oh, all okay. titled correspondingly. Uh, and um, some of the music 
on the soundtrack to instrumental is intended to be like diegetic, diegetic music, meaning uh, that that's music that is intended like the ba- the band that Tom plays in is the same instrumentation as the band that is on the soundtrack, and so it's meant to be like his band playing this music. Oh yeah. Um, totally. But I don't say which is which, so I just kind of leave it open for interpretation. I think this is an artist. You're an artist headed for musical theater for that. <laughs> you know what, man? I, I my wife and I joke around all the time that like, or not joke. I mean, it's like a very serious like line of inquiry that like someday I'm gonna do like a musical comic book, like a like a yeah. like a musical with like like um where most of the book is like just dialogue, but then when the musical numbers happen, you like hit play and then this like music comes on and it's like you know, Frankenstein singing about something or whatever. You know? yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, it's I, as I said earlier, I came from a background in theater and I was a dramaturg for many years. And I think that the, the thing that amazes me over my, my career in theater is how musical theater moved to the forefront in storytelling in such a profound way. And it, a lot of the trappings of the classical musical theater form kind of fell away. And mm. so, um, unsympathetic characters and uh, asymmetrical storylines and uh, the, the power of, of music as an abstraction really were embraced by the form over the years. And uh, what would I'm be sure. some good, some good uh, pe- like musicals for me to check out together? Uh, I would say next to normal um, dear Evan Hansen. Uh, yeah both play they they both kind of play in that way um and this past season was so truncated uh there were some like the the musical six i never saw it it, it closed the its opening night was the day the theaters closed oh wow that's too bad. um but it's an exploration of the six wives of henry the eighth um and uh and it, it and so um and even looking at the most recent production of Oklahoma, uh, which restored the kind of country, it had a country western uh, arrangement to the score. The, the, the text and the music were not changed, but it was arranged in a country western way and uh, directed. Uh, I don't know if it will ever be uh, streamed or anything, um, directed to really get to the truth of the pioneer. Uh, exploitation the basically the uh ethnic cleansing that was oklahoma the Whoa. settlement of oklahoma yeah um very on you know that that's a subtext of the, the, that's not in the the classical musical it's more about judd but um that sort of exploded that criminal element of the, yeah. the people involved in, in a way so um, so anyway, the, the, that's one of the, the most important things that's happened in our culture and in, in the theater world in the last few years is the evolution of the musical into these new forms. Awesome. So I'll, Dave, I'll, um, yeah. where, where, can, where can people follow you or find out more information? Tell us a little bit about the web websites. Or... Okay. Um, I'm, I spend a lot of time on Twitter. My Twitter handle is Chisholm Dave. So C-H-I-S-H-O-L-M-D-A-V-E. Um, I'm on Instagram, the Dave Chisholm, T-H-E, Dave Chisholm. And then uh, my website is davechismmusic.com. Okay. Yeah. Thank yeah. you. Thank you so much for being here. So we'll listen to the music. I'll play a little bit. Of, we can, we can uh, let me just, right, it's coming on. I don't know if you can hear it, but it's coming on. <laughs> it uh, starts kind of, kind of soft. So yeah, softly. Yeah. So um, thanks so much. It's the truth to power show and ready for Brooklyn. 
Uh, hope you enjoyed uh, being here. Thank you so much for being here. Thanks so much for having me. I Thank really you. appreciate it. Dave Chisholm, it's been great talking to you and good luck with everything. Look forward to Charlie. Thanks so much, guys. Thank you. Take care, guys. Take care. Okay. Bye-bye now. All right, the music is playing. Thank you. <laughs> Bye. Bye. Have a great day, Dave. You it's too. been great Thank talking you. to hey, you. Hey, thanks so much, guys. I really appreciate it.